From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latinx culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin-A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Decadence is stagnation, repetition, gridlock, decay at a very high level of wealth and technological achievement and political accomplishment. You have to be successful in the first place to be decadent. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I've known Ross Douthat for, I don't know now, more than a decade. Um, we're both uh, early bloggers, and I think he's one of the truly great, like persuasive writers of the era. And I mean something specific there. Ross is always writing for an audience that doesn't really agree with him. And he does that really well. It's a hard thing to do. It's not something most people do well. But it's a habit that I think makes him unusually good at holding a lot of contrasting ideas together. He's a great synthesizer of different thoughts. And that's very on display in his new book, The Decadent Society. It's a really interesting but very weird book of social criticism. He's diagnosing a kind of an ideological exhaustion, a spiritual malaise at the center of the American project. He sees it in repetitive gridlocked politics in which we rehearse the debates of old over and over again. He sees it in a cultural sphere that churns out sequels and reboots. It just riffs on our past without building for our future. He sees it in a world of sci-fi literature and techno-speculation that has traded utopias for dystopias. He sees it in low birth rates, in the weakening of our space program, and the general collapse of our expansionist instinct, be that territorial or temporal. We are, he thinks, a victim of our own successes, exhausted by our own achievements and unable to break free from our oldest debates. Now, Ross and I, we have very different worldviews, and I think that comes pretty clear in here. He's a religious Eastern conservative, and I'm a secular Bay Area liberal. But I, I think there's something in what he's saying, but I wanted to press on it because I'm not sure the alternatives to decadence, if you examine them closely, they always look that good either. And I wonder if there's not too much nostalgia in his diagnosis too, an emphasis on a past that isn't the right prescription for our future. I want to note, and you'll you'll hear it in the show, this was recorded before the George Floyd video and the protests that have rocked the country over the past couple of weeks. 
Um, and I, I think that actually casts the discussion in an interesting light. So we're, we're doing this without that information, but I think having that information um, helps think through some of these arguments in a slightly different way. As always, my email is ezraklineshow at vox.com. Here is Ross Douthit. Ross Douthit, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ezra. It's great to be here. So let me start here. When was America at its least decadent? Probably like, you know, mid-July 1863, Battle of Gettysburg. Why? You know, huge, huge civil war, in incredible moral and existential stakes, fate of the Union, equal worth of every human being hanging in the balance, people dying, cannons firing. I mean, that's that's about as, that's probably as undecadent as America has has ever been. Which is a good example of like, if you're the guy, you know, on Little Round Top at that moment, you know, maybe maybe you'd feel like, you know, some decadence sounds pretty good. Was the Confederacy decadent? I mean, there were some features of decadence in slaveholding culture, but no, I would not know. The, the Confederacy was not decadent. It was wicked, but not decadent. And I'm going to ask one more of these questions because I, I want to structure this before we get into the definitions. Is America or China more decadent? America right now seems Why? more decadent because, I mean, well, I, I think the comparative responses to uh, the coronavirus are sort of indicative. Um, China did sort of some ruthless and pretty evil things in response to the coronavirus. And we don't know exactly, you know, we don't have perfect information, obviously, on how successful they were, but they were sort of ruthless and evil and pretty effective in response and now seem to be, as we're taping this, literally seem to be using the global calamity created by a virus that began in their own country to basically expand their footprint, clamping down in Hong Kong, sending soldiers across disputed territory in, in India, in the Himalayan areas, whereas we're sitting around with, you know, we'll, we're going to end up with many more dead people than China, and we're having a finger-pointing culture war about whether to open our bars or not. So as with the Confederacy, China's more evil than we are. But in terms of their capacity to act, um, they seem less decadent. Is America more or less decadent than before coronavirus? Remains to be seen. I mean, I, I think I think you could say the coronavirus has sort of exposed the realities of some forms of our decadence in pretty you know stark ways. At the same time, we haven't done. I mean, cert in certain ways, we've done terribly and 100,000 people are dead. In certain ways, we haven't done as badly as sort of a worst case account of decadence would suggest. Um, so if you read, I know we're getting ahead of ourselves, but if you read some of the speculations that I have in my book about how decadence could end in catastrophe, right? One of them is a little bit like this scenario. It's not a pandemic, but a global economic crisis starts in China, ripples around the world. And in my scenario, gridlock in Washington is so powerful that there's no federal response at all. And we just sort of crater into a real Great Depression. Um, so just the fact that we, in spite of our gridlock and incompetence, did actually manage to pass a bunch of legislation. The Fed has been very active. People are getting unemployment benefits. Small businesses, to some extent, are surviving for now. It's less of a worst case scenario than some analyses of decadence might have led you to expect. And then it's possible, you know, if we end up 
racing our way to a vaccine and uh, faster than people expect. That's not decadent at all. So, you know, time will tell. So I think that sets a stage. So what is decadence? Glad you asked, Ezra. Decadence is stagnation, repetition, gridlock, decay at a very high level of wealth and technological achievement and sort of political accomplishment. So you have to be successful in the first place to be decadent. You have to be rich. You have to be technologically proficient. Then at a certain point, torpor and sclerosis sets in and you enter into an era of slower economic growth, the kind of political incapacity that you talk about in so many interesting ways in your own recent book, a certain kind of technological slowdown, which is whether that's actually happened is a little more controversial, but I think it has. And then a kind of cultural and intellectual repetition where you're having the same political arguments, the same intellectual debates and making the same, in our case, superhero movies for decades, if not generations on end and having fewer babies. Um, that would also be a symptom. Of I've been struggling with the definition a bit since I read the book. And tell me if this is what is wrong with this definition of decadence. Affluence without growth or purpose. How much is that what you're describing? A kind of like a listless form of affluence. Yeah, I think that's good. No, that's, that's, that's really good. That's like, and like, that's like one fifth the length of my definition. So I should just feel it. <laughs> well, you're welcome to it. But but the reason I ask that is that I want to, for the devil's advocate position here, try to argue for decadence for a bit, because I want to see what its boundaries are. And the thing that was striking to me reading your book is how much the non-decadent periods, places, times, countries are bound by a purpose or an approach to growth that can be at times evil, but much more often is just at, least, at the very least morally complicated. And so like an, an example is that the decline of our interstellar ambition comes up a lot in the book, but the space race was a function of the Cold War, which was a genuinely existential risk to the planet. And I can believe that war is a force that gives us meaning, but maybe it's better to live with a little bit less meaning if it means a lot less danger of nuclear war. Yes. I mean, that's so that this is not a crazy argument. And one of the things I try and do throughout the book is sort of at least nod to that perspective, in part because I, I to some extent, I believe it myself. Right. If you told me, you know, you have a choice, you can live the next 50 years or 60 years uh, of your existence in a affluent but stagnant United States, or we can have, you know, World War Three. <laughs> Right. Or we could have a, you know, a wave of global pandemics or something. I'm going to choose probably the less exciting, maybe less meaning rich and drama rich, but more comfortable form of existence. And, you know, th the moral point you make, right, it's an interesting one, because I think one of the arguments is that there are sort of decadent societies have a particular kind of evil that is different from the kind of evil that more dynamic societies have. And the decadent society is less likely to commit the worst crimes. You're less likely to have 
not just sort of the catastrophic war, but the settler colonial genocide or something in a society that's decadent, because a decadent society isn't going to go become an empire and conquer other societies. That's sort of not generally what a decadent society does. So there's clearly a lot of, I think, moral uncertainty about which kind of era is optimal. The problem with decadence, though, is that you sort of rule out certain forms of moral heroism, moral greatness, moral transformation, even as you're ruling out sort of worst case scenarios of calamity and barbarism. Um, so you're less likely to, you know, not just get sort of individual saints and, and heroes, but also sort of big waves of moral reform. It's easier to get the civil rights era in a society that is also capable of maybe greater evils than our own, because there's more dynamism and there's more sort of youth and energy and idealism to go around. So you you lose some of that. And then there's also the danger of sort of sliding towards dystopia, right, where you end up at a kind of Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, or, you know, the the fleet of starships on Wally destination where everyone's just sort of sitting around looking at pornography and consuming big gulp sodas. And at every step of the way, you tell yourself, well, this is obviously better than having war and famine and catastrophe. And that is always true right up until it isn't. And then finally, there's the issue that we're seeing now with the pandemic, right, which is that decadent societies face challenges that are unexpected. And the things that make them decadent make it harder for them to cope with those challenges. And so you're in more sort of mortal existential danger from unexpected threats if you're decadent than you are if you're dynamic, but also morally problematic. Well, well, maybe, maybe not, right? I mean, you have a quote in the book that I thought was super interesting, where you write that across human history, the most dynamic and creative societies have been almost inevitably expansionary. And at some point, isn't it good as a society, like an actual good, both in terms of what we do to others, to ourselves, to the planet, both in terms of the, the, the safety we could or could not have, to move beyond the idea that the main form of purpose is expansionary? Yes, but it's hard to do that in a way that retains a sort of important human ambitions and important forms of human flourishing, I guess. I think that's that's the dilemma, right? So from a religious perspective, right, there's a wide literature that's associated with figures like Wendell Berry, the sort of farmer philosopher of Kentucky that is incredibly critical of the modern world and its sort of focus on growth for growth's sake and argues for a sort of more organic and sort of limits respecting and in effect less ambitious way of life, a kind of partial return to Eden. And I think that's a very powerful idea. And at times I'm very attracted to that idea. This book, though, is written more in the spirit of um, an idea that Peter Thiel, the highly controversial billionaire, has offered in his own theological interpretation, where he basically says, look, the Bible begins in a garden, but it ends in a city. And what he means by that is that there are advantages to ways of life that, you know, live within limits. There are obviously advantages and beauties in the pastoral existence and so on. But once you've passed a certain point of development, it's really hard to go back 
to that. It's hard to, you know, this is like the people who write books arguing that the hunter-gatherers were, you know, had a way better way of life than most human beings after the agricultural revolution, right? And those are really fun books, and they're interesting books, and they have, you know, probably important morals, important sort of philosophical ideas that we can draw on. But it's really hard to imagine a path back to hunter-gatherer existence, or at least one that doesn't involve, you know, a nuclear apocalypse or something like that. But, but wait, I think in some ways you're giving it too too little credit. And and I should note, I think people listen to the show and, you know, like I tend to be more on the growth side of this argument, but I, I want to try to give it its due here because I think if there's going to be an answer in advanced societies to decadence, it may have to be quite different. You bring up Wendell Berry. And Wendell Berry's a, an amazing, beautiful writer and thinker, but he's kind of chill. I don't think the answer to decadence is going to come through Wendell Berry, but you do have a, a sort of an offshoot of him in the degrowth movements, like say Greta Thunberg or Extinction Rebellion in the UK. And they're preaching a much more radical acceptance of limits and natural harmony. They're involved in a confrontation with power. You were just saying a couple minutes ago that the problem with decadent societies is you don't get this moral fervor, radical transformations. They're demanding a radical transformation are they right is that the is that the anti-decadence for an affluent society that uses way more than its allotted you know human resources and probably should not be like starting <laughs> like starting a conflict with china so they're not decadent i know i i agree i think that the puritanism of the degrowth movement is a form of anti-decadence and it's a vision of moral renewal that's that's different from the kind of wally brave new world we're all just sort of sitting in front of our screens kind of mode my analysis at the moment which could totally be wrong is that that ends up being more of sort of an adjunct for most people of a kind of you know, decadent way of life. I mean, that's that's what it's been basically for the last 40 or 50 years, right? That the tribute you pay to that idea in certain sort of liberal enlightened circles is, you know, a little bit of a little bit of locally sourced this and a little bit of, you know, recycling over here and, you know, some trips to get in touch with nature. Now, Thunberg and others are much more radical than that, but they would need a mechanism. In a sense, they would need a mechanism to take power, one, and having taken power, the path to degrowth is an incredibly fraught and potentially violent one, right? I mean, don't don't you think that's right? If you, if you yes, were going to say, think that's take right. the United States in a genuinely degrowth direction, like this is the sort of, you know, it's not the full Ted Kaczynski, but it's not not the full <laughs> Ted Kaczynski, right? I have asked a question on this show, and, and I continue to think it's an interesting question of why we don't see as much eco-terrorism, in fact, much more right now than we did, say, in the 90s. And I think it's a genuinely interesting question, and it is hard for me to imagine. I do not want to. like I'm not making an argument for eco-terrorism here, but as you say, I am not sure a revolution of that size can be accomplished peacefully. I don't think it can. Which is, again, if it's if it's the revolution that's necessary to save the human race, that isn't a dispositive case against it. But it means that if you're looking for ways out of decadence, you're ultimately looking for the way out that is the truest to human potential and ambition, but also kills the smallest number of people. But that's my that's my concern about decadence, that maybe a lot of it is tied up in violence. Or I'm sorry, anti-decadence, right? That expansion is tied up in violence. I mean, you talk about going to Mars, but I think that has a little bit of the same problem, where that's something somebody else does. 
that's not a society it doesn't go to Mars, at least not for a long time. That's like we give NASA more money, like 3x more money or 10x more money, or we give Elon Musk more money. That's my question for you, which is like, what is a vision of anti-decadence that isn't violent? Because I think you do gesture towards this in the book, but I'd say it's a tension that remains unresolved, which is, I would say the society's moments and movements that you count as non-decadent, when they achieve a critical mass, they are intimately interwoven with violence, either through inflicting it or, um, per, you know, in I think the most beautiful dimensions, provoking it such that it can be stood against and seen, right? Like say the civil rights movement or some of the nonviolent resistance movements. But, but there's a lot of violence around this kind of vision of social purpose, which always gives me a little bit of the heebie-jeebies around it. I think that's generally pretty fair. I mean, I, I think that you can pick out lots of specific areas of renewal that don't require violence or necessarily summon up violence in order to be achieved, right? I mean, if, if you sort of drill down to the levels of, you know, particular areas, right? So if you say like, you know, some sort of renaissance of architecture, that does not necessarily require violence. Although, of course, you know, the, the shadow side of that is like, if you're going to build a ton of buildings, you have to tear down a ton of buildings and suddenly you're in slum clearance debates and back, you know, back to sort of the urban wars of the 60s. So maybe even there, there isn't a perfect escape. But, you know, if you talk about if you talk about the revival of the novel as an important art form or a religious awakening or, you know, these kind of things, they aren't sort of necessarily and inherently violent. And in fact, if you look at the history of the United States, you know, you started asking me about our least decadent moment and I leaped to a moment of maximum violence. But one of the things that the U.S. has done pretty successfully throughout its history is have periods of reform and renewal and revolution and conflict that have violence sort of woven into them, but don't lead to catastrophic civil war, mass death, and so on, right? Like we have we have been able to have periodic religious revivals without reproducing the 16th century and 17th century wars of religion. We've had periods of dramatic political reform that haven't required the Russian or the French Revolution. So the, the risk of violence is obviously always there and has been there throughout American history. But I, I think you can tell stories about the past where periods of revival and renaissance don't necessarily lead to, you know, mass murder, the guillotine, the gulag, and so on. I think it's possible to be more optimistic than that, while still being realistic and saying, you know, yeah, there is in any in any endeavor worth doing, there's some risk of violence and death hanging around hanging around the edges. I think that's certainly true. And with with space, I mean, this is sort of the you know, the the weird thing about space, right, is that it it is this frontier that at the moment seems to be both uninhabited and uninhabitable. So it has sort of this moral advantage where you can have exploration in certain ways, you know, for the first time, unless you count like polar expeditions of certain kinds without having to come in conflict with and displace indigenous peoples. But bad news, you know, there isn't anything there isn't anything we can get to that's sort of worth worth the trip either. That's sort of the dilemma of the dilemma of space at the moment. Would it help or hurt if America legalized psychedelics? My gut is that it would hurt, but this this relates probably to my sort of Catholic 
Christian traditional monotheist biases against the uh, against the religious awakenings of the 60s and 70s. But my take on the last 50 years of American religion is that historically, America went through these periods of great awakening, these periods of religious revival that were then channeled into successful institution building and great political causes and great religious projects. Um, so religious periods of religious revival start out wild and crazy, but end up building the Mormon church or something, you know, these sort of these enduring, slightly strange, but sort of effective forces in American life. And the awakenings of the 60s and 70s, and I do think the 60s and 70s were a period of religious awakening, ended up just leading sort of into a kind of permanent religious individualism where nobody's sort of building anything institutional, the communal aspect of religion, and in certain ways, the sort of philosophical and intellectual aspect of religion gets a lot weaker. And you have a society of people who are having tons of spiritual experiences, but aren't translating them into, you know, new churches or revivals within existing churches, and aren't translating them into something that can be held in common. And maybe the dilemma of psychedelics is they create sort of numinous experiences that are so individual and so personalized that you can't build anything off them. Well, let me try and make the counter argument here. You talk a lot in the book about space. There is an interesting intertwining of at least parts of our interstellar ambitions in psychedelics. I mean, for instance, we get the picture of Earth because Stuart Brand sits on a roof one day, takes a tab of LSD, and is like, huh, it's weird they never turn the cameras backwards. And he creates a movement to like actually get that blue pearl picture, which has been certainly the center of a lot of human imaginations and imaginings. And then secondarily, while you were making that argument that psychedelics don't build institutions, I mean, one reason for that might be that uh, there was a lot of state uh, suppression meant to keep anything like that from happening. But putting that aside, I think there's an argument that one of the institutions they were at least relevant to building was Silicon Valley itself. And there's like a lot of scholarship and, and, and work on this. But I mean, you have this with Steve Jobs, you have it with a lot of these players that there's a, there's a connection between psychedelic culture, sort of new agey religious culture out here and the tech industry that takes root. And I think you could say it may not be a positive story, right? It ends up taming what were countercultural ideas. And now there's a there's an onion headline I always I always love. Ayahuasca shaman tired of shepherding people to realizations about their SEO strategy, <laughs> which I've always thought is a very good, good encapsulation of that. But nevertheless, um there seems to be something about it allowing you to imagine things. You know, and and yeah, and you could you could use that as as an example of the stories that I was telling. Right. Yeah, you could say that Silicon Valley is in effect um, you know, the equivalent of Mary Baker Eddy's Christian Science or Joseph Smith and what the LDS church became, right? That it's sort of the positive institutional expression of the awakening created by LSD culture or psychedelic culture, and that something like, you know, effective altruism is the missionary spirit of, of, of that. No, I could, I could be, I could be convinced by that. I'd still find it theologically, you know, theologically well, sure. defi deficient, but, but I don't, I, I could be, you could talk me into that narrative. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that is interesting to me about the, about religion and psychedelics here is sort of two as like the West coast, East coast ideas for this is that if you're thinking about the individual dimension of decadence, 
I think what you're talking about, and again, you can tell me if I'm getting this wrong, is a narrowing of horizons, right? A sense that the big questions are settled. You sort of have an interpretation of Francis Fukuyama's end of history book as being much more prescient than people today give it credit for, for, for seeing this was going to happen. And that one way, certain forms of, of taking religion seriously, which I think is different than being religious and not taking it seriously, is that it blows open which questions are settled and unsettled um, and how one should live. And certainly that is, in a different way, the effect of psychedelics on people, where it blows open questions of what is settled and unsettled and urges people towards at least imagining different ways to live. Yeah. I mean, I think the question with with drugs generally is similar to the question that I have about the internet, right? Which is, is this genuinely mind expanding or does it sort of, in a, in a certain way, imprison you in a space that seems very expansive, but doesn't end up having a huge effect on the real world. And I'm not completely sure of the answer to this question, but the answer I lean towards in the book with like virtual reality, the, you know, the virtual realities that the internet creates is that they seem like escapes from decadence. Cause look, you know, you're blowing open the frontier and you're going into new spaces and so on. But in the end, because these spaces are ultimately virtual, they tend toward sort of virtual life, virtual behavior that doesn't translate into both personal and political transformation. And I think a lot of the drugs that have become sort of big in Western culture over the last 20 years fit more into that dynamic, right? That sort of, you know, opioids and marijuana together are drugs of sort of a kind of not necessarily gentle, but a kind of numb experience, a chilled out experience of the world. But psychedelics are different. And maybe they're the equivalent of, you know, not not just the video game, but the kind of the breakthrough in virtual reality that makes it, you know, less decadent than I think sort of virtual reality has been to date. I'm glad you brought up VR. So people on this show have heard me say that I'm very afraid of VR dystopias, that I can really imagine a world 30 or 40 years ago where we're in the Ready Player One dystopia. And I kind of think of that as the decadent dystopia. Um, Ready Player One, that, that world is, yeah, that's that's super decadent. Yes. So our artificial intelligence, like being annihilated or dominated by an artificial intelligence we create, I think of that as the non-decadent dystopia. That that is like we we did something amazing and we're fucked. <laughs> right. What no, is, Terminator, Terminate the Terminator movies are not decadent. Skynet right. is not decadent. Yeah. So what is utopia? Like what is the vision you think of? Like you you spend a lot of time in the book um reading culture through these lenses, but you you primarily read it in dystopic ways. Is Star Trek the non-decadent utopia? Like what what is it? I mean, Star Trek is uh, certainly, I mean, one reason that I do spend a fair amount of time focused on space travel is because at least as it was briefly experienced in the space race and as it was sort of imagined long term in a lot of the science fiction that I read, you know, as a teenager, that was a vision of the future where human beings retained some form of their of sort of a recognizable human nature, flaws and all, while going on, you know, experiences of dramatic exploration that widened human frontiers and 
brought us into contact in some stories with other, you know, other forms of intelligent life and other stories just sort of, you know, expanded our technological and political capabilities and created, you know, scenarios for all kinds of strange experiments and encounters. And in those worlds, the sort of VR stuff and the AI stuff it's striking that it's it's usually controlled in some sense, right? So like on Star Trek, there is incredibly effective VR in the form of the holodeck, which is so effective that, you know, every hundred episodes or so, it gets out of control and like the holodeck characters <laughs> try and take over the ship. And yet somehow this advanced society is sufficiently committed to living in reality that people just use the holodeck the way we might use like watching an HBO show or something at bedtime, right? It's just sort of a piece of entertainment, a little break from your from your regular life of exploring the galaxy. But there's no sense that like back on Earth, everybody's just living in the holodeck all the time. Or similarly, Dune, to take an example that, um, you know, has has a, a film adaptation coming out if movie adaptations ever come out again this year. Uh, in the Dune novels, human beings actually reach, they, they sort of reach the singularity or they reach the sort of AI moment and they decide that it's bad <laughs> and they rebel against it and get rid of artificial intelligence. And so the, and then train themselves to perform, train the human mind to perform some of the computational tasks that are required to have to run spaceships and have a galactic civilization. So those are models that I find sort of intuitively attractive. They're models where AI, virtual reality, you know, these sort of breakthroughs are either either they're tamed in some way or the worst of them are repudiated and the sort of persistence of human nature is affirmed. But obviously, that's not utopia. That's my bias towards a positive vision of the future. Is part of the idea here that no utopia would be utopian, which is to say in this framework, for all the reasons that violence has been very connected to non-decadence, to dynamism, you can imagine a better version of that, but it doesn't seem to me plausible. In some ways, decadence seems to me to be for you the absence of struggle which I think is how many people often define utopia, but you, but your argument is that would come with a, a collapse of meaning. So that like utopia is in this framework almost a self-negating concept? I think utopia within the world as it exists is self-negating, yes. Um, which is why, I mean, the power of a book like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which is obviously sort of a touchstone for whatever I'm doing in my book, is precisely that it takes a world that seems to fit a lot of people's definitions of utopia. No struggle, you know, plenty, prosperity, as much pleasure as you want, drops you into the middle of it and makes you f experience it as a dystopia. Um, and that doesn't, that doesn't mean, though, that like, you know, that sort of the, the, ambition for a better world or 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 that that doesn't mean that utopian ambitions themselves are bad and in fact i have a lot of sympathy for utopian ambitions in the sense that i think you know they're one of the things that gets lost under decadence right people stop imagining you know the best possible society and they just sort of shrug and say well you know we're we're sort of stuck we're sort of stuck with what we have but in practice, yeah, I mean, utopia is only possible from 
a Christian perspective, which I think is the correct perspective, with a perfected human nature. And if you don't have a perfected human nature, the only kind of utopias you can build are going to end up sort of chopping off some part, some some good thing in order to get you to stability. Let's inhabit the Christian perspective for a couple of minutes. I went down a Ross that sort of writings on religion rabbit hole. I read um, <laughs> To Change the Church and your arguments for Tyler Cohen about why you should believe in God and, and, and a bunch of things in this space. <laughs> and I have, a, I have a number of questions. Um, in the Decadence book, you have a line I'm quoting here where you say that reconciling a hard neo-Darwinian materialism with a liberalism that still tacitly depends on Christian metaphysics and moral absolutes isn't possible. I don't understand the sequence of words in the sentence all that well, so can you explain to me what you're saying there? Sure. I'm saying that if the world is as, let's say, Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett describe it, um, if consciousness is an illusion sort of conjured up, well, I, honestly, I don't think I don't think their perspective is sufficiently coherent for me to even describe it in totally coherent ways. Well, but, we'll try. but if, if conscious, consciousness is an illusion and the world is just matter in motion and the things that seem important to human beings like, you know, love, which you mentioned earlier, are themselves finally reducible to chemical interactions, then the only argument for um, the passionate moral perspective that I think still you know, still is a big part of political liberalism and is certainly a big part of the political left, you know, a big part of what people on the right-hand side of arguments deride as social justice warriors, right? Like social justice warriors really care about something called justice. There's no fundamental grounding for that perspective beyond some combination of preference and aesthetic, right? You can, you know, you can end up where like Richard Rorty ends up and say, well, I prefer a world with less pain to a world with more pain for the same reason that I think a tulip is particularly lovely. And I recognize that this is just an aesthetic preference, but that's not how most liberals think about their moral worldviews. They think of them as having something to do with the actual order of the universe, right? They think that, you know, right and wrong are, are real are real things that correlate to something in objective reality. Well, let me try to be a hard neo-Darwinian materialist for a minute, which I don't think I am necessarily, but but I'm, I'm probably closer than you are, which is to say that if we are just matter that happens to have formed into a construction where we get to have an experience, and that is an extraordinarily lucky, rare, unusual thing to be, and illusion or not illusion, like we are matter that became self-aware and will be matter that became self-aware for a little while, and most matter will never get that opportunity. And that that implies that like, wow, what a lucky break, and you should make it possible for other matter to have a good experience of being self-aware, which is fundamentally, I think, where like a lot of effective altruism comes from, right? That, you know, if you take your own experiences and their pain and pleasure seriously, then the experiences of other people, including people far away from you, have incredible moral weight. I don't really understand why you need anything more than that. I don't know what is out there. I'm probably not exactly as materialist as this would sound, but I don't think my ethical code relies on much more. I mean, I don't think we should torture chickens because I think that chicken suffering is bad because it hurts them in the same way that it would hurt me. And I don't feel a need for there to be something more than that experience of pain being something that I reject as a necessity. 
So one, you have already, as I expected, abandoned the hardest Darwinian materialism by talking about this thing called the self. Right. So the idea that the self is is a meaningful concept of moral analysis is itself a step away from hard Darwinian, the hardest Darwinian materialism, I would say. So you're I think you're already in somewhat metaphysical territory with this concept of, you know, this concept of selves, this, you know, what, what is this? What is the self, Ezra? It's not. You know, can you measure the self? Can you quantify the self? No, the self is an experience. And the hardest Darwinians would say it's an experience that is, you know, essentially, not essentially, that is simply an illusion. So what you're saying from a hard Darwinian perspective is, I like my illusion and I want other people to, but I, I want other illusions to have illusions like mine, right? Yeah, or, or I would use the word experience. The word the word illusion is doing a lot of work there. I would just use the word experience. I am having an experience, like the hard problem of consciousness, right, is we can't know what other subjective experiences are like. We can't know what it's like to be a bat. But I am making an act of projection here. My experience is unbelievably important I'm, to me. I got to tell you, yeah. I'm recording this in an attic that has had bats in it. So I feel like at this moment, <laughs> I do sort of, I have solved Fair the enough. Thomas Nagel problem and I do know what it's like to be a bat. But just to go to this, just to, to, to go to this, the second order question, right? I mean, we're like, you know, recapitulating debates that much more sophisticated people than us have had. So I apologize. Yeah, but we're going to solve them on the podcast. You aren't giving me a reason. So if I tomorrow, to put it in the crudest possible terms, if I tomorrow have an opportunity to transfer $1 million in sweet, sweet, why we're polarized book deal lucre from your bank account to my bank account, right? And nobody need ever know that this happens. You will have no idea that it ever happened. In fact, even better, I will I will give you a uh, a fine drug that makes you forget entirely that you ever made, you know, any money off your last book. And the money will be transferred to my account, you will be none the wiser. And my, I I will tell you that that, you know, that that money will dramatically increase my pleasure, my hedonic experience of everyday existence and with the aid of the drug, I think, you know, maybe, you know, you'll miss out a little bit, but you won't even know what you're missing. So your hedonic experience will be lowered by substantially less than my hedonic experience will be raised. And, you know, maybe I'll enjoy it, frankly. You know, I'll, I'll derive a little extra hedonic pleasure from putting one over on you. Is there something wrong with that? Should I not do that? So we don't recapitulate all of Western ethical <laughs> philosophy, um, or at least the entirety of the good place. Yes, there's whole like ideas about contractualism and other things. But the thing that I'm the thing that I am getting but, at here, uh huh. But but also I, your consciousness isn't real, right? Like I mean, that's the other. No, thing. no, no. See, I I really I really I, I disagree with that idea of consciousness being real. But I want to make sure we don't go into it because we'll okay. never get out. What I want to hit at here is actually the other part of the sentence because. What I'm saying is whether or not you believe that, um, you know, consequentialism or variants of utilitarianism or whatever 
are based on enough, given the idea that, like, as you'd put it, that we are an illusion or our consciousness is an illusion. What's interesting to me is the idea that liberalism tacitly depends on Christian metaphysics and moral absolutes, right? Part of the argument in decadence is that as things are getting untied from religion, there is a kind of moral listlessness that is beginning to descend. And yet, a lot of the most hardcore moralistic people I know are also very materialist, right? I mean, you mentioned the effect of altruism earlier. Most of those people are pretty atheist. In fact, a lot of them come out of the the new atheist movement and they have moved into a very ascetic form of living because they take the experiences of other creatures so seriously. So I'm asking why you think why why you need that given the lived experience one that you don't, but also by the way, the lived experience that plenty of people who believe in the natural law moral absolutes that um that that you're honoring here don't seem to follow them with any particular level of commitment. First of all, I want to say I don't think the effective altruists are listless. I mean, I think there is a general moral listlessness of a certain kind in decadent societies. But I think that it's also the case that, you know, within under, under decadence, it's perfectly possible to be a moral zealot. And, you know, the, the, the sort of the cultural context doesn't make it impossible to live like Mother Teresa or, or you know, live like live like the effective altruist version of Mother Teresa. So I'm not questioning the moral zeal of uh, your effective altruist friends, nor am I questioning per se the moral zeal of a lot of people left and right in our society having debates right now. I think the the issue that you were sort of drilling down on with that quote from me is more an issue of incoherence. I don't think the effective altruist world picture particularly makes sense. And I think it's incoherence is one reason among many why it's hard to build sort of mass movements and to create, you know, dramatic cultural change based on that world picture. I mean, I think one of the advantages that Christianity had in its encounter with the sort of pre-Christian late antiquity worldviews that nowadays we call paganism, although people obviously didn't call them that then to begin with, is that it it was perceived as a picture, a world picture that united different aspects of how people experienced existence into a coherent account of what human beings are, what the universe is, what we're doing here, what our purposes are, and therefore why we should try to be saints. And I don't think, I think effective altruism has a lot of admirable things going for it, but I don't think it offers that kind of world picture. And I think it's vulnerable to some fairly obvious objections or to some pretty obvious sort of, you know, reductio ad absurdum rebuttals. Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger, or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. 
New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with Wise. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let Wise help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using Wise worldwide. To learn more about how a Wise account could work for you, download the app or visit wise.com. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot com, wise.com. I want to ask you something that I asked Rod Dreher that I don't fully feel like I understand even yet. Why are America's Catholic conservatives so much more obsessed with sex than poverty or with, say, gender than greed? First of all, it depends on the conservative Catholic that you're talking to. But I would say in part, it reflects three things, right? First, the fact that you had in American life a kind of consensus around sexual ethics, very roughly speaking, that ruptured in the course of the 1960s and has been sort of an area of clear contest ever since. So you have a sort of novel debate that then creates new battle lines that didn't exist to the same extent before the 60s. So it's not surprising in that sense that there is this particular focus on sex and sexual ethics that you know wasn't the case before and this is a this is true on the left as well as the right right you i mean you're obviously very familiar with people on the left who complain that sort of mainstream liberalism used to be really focused on new deal era anti-poverty programs and has ended up really focused on um you know pride month that also reflects the fact that a new set of debates entered into American life, reshuffled coalitions and created coalitions that were often divided by debates about sex. So that's one issue. I mean, I think another issue is that American Catholics ended up for somewhat necessary and somewhat contingent reasons in a political coalition with the sort of, you know, libertarian, small business oriented portion of American political culture. And that alliance has had some consequences, I think often negative consequences for conservative Catholic witness on issues of political economy. So my, you know, I've spent a certain amount of my so-called career as a Catholic pundit arguing that conservative Catholics should have a slightly different economic agenda than the existing Republican Party does. And I think the fact that they don't is partially a reflection of sort of the contingency of political alliances, that if you end up in an alliance with a party that includes a lot of sort of, you know, casual libertarians and even Ayn Rand acolytes, that will 
have some kind of compromising effect on where your focus is. And then the final issue is that America is a really rich society. And, you know, there's still lots and lots of poverty, obviously, in American life, but really rich societies, I think, tend by their nature to have arguments that are focused on things like sex rather than things like day-to-day survival. So again, I don't think it's surprising. Maybe this is a version of the first point I make, but I don't think it's surprising that post that a sort of somewhat post-scarcity society would end up arguing a lot more about what we think of as cultural issues than about issues of exactly how much economic redistribution to do. But but to dig in on this, you make the point and 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 I appreciate it that you know you have for a long time made the argument that Catholics in America and conservative Catholics should have a slightly different economic approach than the Republican Party. But in a way, I would say it is that they should have a slightly different approach, right? Like sort of reformicons aren't jettisoning conservatism. It's child tax credits. It's, you know, in in Sam's Cup Republicans, you and Raihan made the argument for a sort of Obamacare looking um, healthcare system. It isn't that 50% of the national budget should go to foreign aid because look at how much poverty there is out in the world. Or, I mean, it isn't an ascetic uh, level of taxation and redistribution or really of anything. And so I'm, I'm curious about that, right? Like there is a lot of greed in society. There's a lot of economic inequality. There is, you know, you know, all the arguments much better than I do that there is quite a bit of focus on these issues in the Bible. And I'm just kind of always struck by the fury over, say, gender politics amidst the alliances with extraordinary levels of wealth and people willing to sustain extraordinary levels of wealth. I mean, I take your point that there is a critique of the left, or at least of liberals, that you know it begins in economic redistribution and it ends in Pride Month. But I would say, like, if you act, I, I cover these people and I know what they actually spend their days working on—the ones in power and who lead the Democratic Party—and Nancy Pelosi spends her time like trying to pass tax credits and more economic stimulus and Barack Obama like wrote a lot of budgets and like they have their rhetoric and they lit the White House in uh, rainbow colors for the Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage. But there actually is a tremendous amount of economic focus continuously in the Democratic Party that I think people just want to downplay largely for rhetorical reasons. Whereas that doesn't strike me in Catholic conservatism. I do try to follow the debates in First Things and elsewhere, and I just see a lot more energy on gender than I ever see on economics. And the push is not very radical, even when there is a push. It's like towards a little bit more of a humane approach to it, or what I would call a humane approach to it, as opposed to a very different equilibrium being understood as the moral one. Well, I mean, I'm not sure that's actually a totally fair reading of intra-Catholic debates over, over the last five or 10 years. I think that the combination of the Great Recession and the rise of Trumpism has created a lot more skepticism about sort of where American capitalism has ended up among, especially, I think, Catholic writers, you know, who are younger than I am. I'm 40. So people who didn't experience the golden days of the 1990s and have only experienced the economy since, but also older people. I mean, figures like, like who are the, put it this way, when I was sort of coming of age as a writer, sort of the leading, leading Catholic writers, conservative Catholic writers on issues of sort of economics and society would be a figure like a Michael Novak, who was most famous sort of as someone who made a kind of theological argument in favor of free markets against Catholic critics of capitalism. And today, the equivalent figures in terms of influence among younger Catholics might be some, you know, some kind of range from a Patrick Deneen 
to an Adrian Vermeule at, you know, at, at Harvard, who's, you know, famous as a kind of Catholic integralist or, you know, quasi-Catholic monarchist or something, all of whom have views of capitalism that are much more critical than Novak and views of political economy that are to the left of whatever, what Raihan and I wrote 10 or 12 years ago. So, and and if you read, you know, the pages of, of First Things, you will have people constantly making arguments for industrial policy and, you know, sort of, sort of a massively pro-family economic policy. They're somewhat different from liberal preoccupations on, on economics, but I think there's much more of an economic preoccupation than there was in the past. Now, that being said, one, it's not at all clear how that translates into politics. And Two, you know, there's also sort of a personality and temperament issue, right? Like the modern welfare state as it exists was arguably built in part under the strong influence of Catholic ideas. So we're all, everyone in the West is living in societies that occupy a kind of zone in between pure laissez-faire and full communism. And that zone was something that not just Catholics, but lots of Catholic politicians and statesmen and popes worked pretty hard to create um, across the late 19th and first half of the 20th century. And so that means that we, you know, we we all inhabit this system that does a certain amount of redistribution, has a safety net, you know, tries to, to some extent, take care of the poor. And even our libertarians, with, you know, the most Randian exceptions, are operating within the, that system. But there is a sort of temperamental divide where the people who want to run that system tend to have sort of not incredibly theological <laughs> perspectives on the world. And the people who have highly theological perspectives on the world tend not to be really interested in the nuts and bolts of running that system. Or at least, I mean, you can tell me if you disagree with this, but this is sort of how when I move back and forth between liberal and religious conservative circles, the religious conservatives are really into talking about theology and culture. And they can be induced to talk about technocratic economic policy if you persuade them that it's important. But that's not sort of where they are temperamentally. And then, you know, the technocratic liberals may, you know, they 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 acknowledge that, you know, theology and sort of cultural issues related to that stuff are are important. But they really liked reading Wonk blog <laughs> once upon a time. Right. Like. And some of what I've done in my own writing has been a, maybe a failed attempt to build a bridge between those worlds. I'm not really a policy wonk, but I've sort of tried to play one. But I think there's some sort of just sort of temperamental issue, like Rod, right? Rod Dreher, like what are his economic views? His economic views on some issues might be to the left of yours if you really pinned him down. But this is actually my point that, yes, I think Rod has a lot of like left economic views on certain issues, or at least would for certain people is maybe the way I would put it. Um, and that's true for Patrick Deneen, who I think gets hazy when you try to push him on what he's actually saying on this stuff, but definitely is operating from a, a framework that is heavily critical of capitalism. And Adrian, Ver how do you say his name? Vermeule? Vermeule. I, I believe who yeah. frankly just like kind of scares me at this point there's a, a weird flirtation with a kind of fascism happening over on some parts of the Catholic right that I think is is interesting but in a more normal place like it's, a it's not it's not it's not fascism but we can we can have the sure. integralism I'll come um, back we can have the integralism okay we can come back to it, but, another time but this is what I wanted this is what I think about it too actually that if you push a lot of these folks 
you will start to get an economic, you know, if you push Saurabh Amar, like, what do you mean? Be like, well, like, I think paid leave is good. And it's like, okay, that's good. But if you don't push them, they get upset at like what they're talking about is drag queen story hour. Or to be more specific about it, I don't really think it's true that they don't want to think about policy. Ban pornography is, in fact, a policy. It operates um, no differently as a policy than like the government should get everybody health care or it should like take the money from rich people and give it to poor people. It's a value that is understood to be a policy. And there's been it just in the last couple of months, a very riotous, interesting debate on the on the religious right about banning pornography, right? Like, is there has there been a huge mistake where like the libertarian dimension of the right overwhelmed the religious dimension of the right? And now we live in this pornographic dystopia. Um, yes. There is not that. The answer energy. to that is yes. Yes. Right. And I actually would like to talk to you about this, but um, but there is not that energy around economics. And at the same time, I mean, the sort of like elephant in the room of this conversation is Pope Francis himself, who, as you write in your book, does actually seem to have a lot of that energy around economics. Um, I just for another podcast with Cyrus Sabib read um, Laudato Si and, you know, some of Pope Francis's other works. And there, he does seem much more offended by greed and economic inequality than he seems upset over the sexual revolution, which seems like on the flip to be something that a lot of the exact people we're talking about, including to some degree you, like are frustrated by with him. Like it's not against him having critique of capitalism, but frustrated that he seems to be willing to make the concessions on the other things he is, which like, yeah, like that that's my question. It's about why, why do some things anger some and not others. But some of that is also just, I mean, it's literally like you're sort of describing the self-sorting, right? So, yes. so Catholicism- But why do you think that self-sorting happens is a good question. Well, I, was, I guess I was trying to get at it in part with questions of sort of temperament and personal interest. But like, yeah, since the 60s, not only Catholicism, but Catholicism has had a, you know, somewhat novel divide between- People who think that the church's primary focus should be um, on rectifying economic injustice and people who think that sort of the kind of secularization of Western life as driven by especially the sexual revolution is the biggest challenge that Catholics face. And that, that just sort of describes a ongoing debate within Roman Catholicism. And so to the extent that you're on the Catholic right, you're there because you think the sort of the sort of social and cultural changes in Western life are, you know, more dangerous to the church, the truth, more likely to send people to hell, what have you, than you think the economic changes in Western life. Now, it's also tricky. There's like the level of the nation and the globe, right? So like, you know, what what are the obligations of the welfare state in the U.S. versus what are the obligations of states to one another? Those are separate questions that might have different answers. And, so, you know, and some of like some of the difference between a Pope Francis and John Paul II and Benedict before him may just just reflects the fact that Pope Francis is from the global south, from a country that was actually sort of pretty wealthy in the first half of the 20th century, Argentina, and then seemed to suffer from globalization in a way that neither Poland nor Germany, where the last two popes were from, did suffer. But so there's a lot of reasons why people move back and forth on along this divide. And part of I'm just trying to suggest that the people who have sort of sorted onto the conservative side of the divide have become more interested in the economic questions over the last 15 years than they were when I started writing. But they're still, I agree, not 
insanely engaged in a kind of policy nitty gritty. But I mean, that's true. But uh, like on the pornography question, right? Like, yes, that's a policy debate. But Sorab and people who want to make the case against porn usually aren't focusing on the nitty gritty of how you redesign web browsers to screen pornography out. So even there, where it's an issue they care deeply about, they're they're more like inclined to have the cultural than the technical debate, I guess. Yeah, but I think that is true in a lot of, I mean, I think that's true for Bernie Sanders, for instance, right? Well, like yeah. On the set of things he cares about. And I think yes. of that as policy debate. Let's go back to something where, where you, you gave me a corrective a moment ago, which is I take the point that I'm being a little bit glib when I say that the integralists are flirting with fascism, but I think only a little. I mean, I have definitely noticed like Vermeil tweeting about who should go to the camps first, Patrick Deneen, who I like and who's been on this podcast, sitting down with Viktor Orban. Um, there is a illiberalism, certainly, that is emergent there and a fury. I mean, when I read Rod and Rod is also, I mean, I do try to like let this stuff be heard here. When I read or even talk to some of these folks, like there is a, um, I don't know what to call it, but illiberalism, frankly, to me, seems like a little bit of too soft a word, a, a, a sense that I have maybe as a Jewish person, that if they were given the power to reorder the world, I'm not sure what would happen to the people on the wrong side of their order. And I'm curious if you don't, if you disagree with me on that. One, I think there's a big difference between the people that you just mentioned. I think there's sure. a, a, a total difference between you know, I mean, Rod's perspective is basically that American Christianity lost the culture war and you need to defend an expansive conception of religious liberty in order to sort of preserve enclaves of traditional Christianity. That is decidedly not Vermeule's perspective. Vermeule's perspective is that liberalism is in crisis and there's a huge opportunity for Catholics specifically to, in effect, sort of use Catholicism as the public philosophy of the Western world instead of liberalism and to advance that goal through elite institutions. And I mean, Vermeule wrote this article for The Atlantic that got tons of attention within a pretty narrow specialized world attacking originalism as a judicial philosophy, the longstanding judicial philosophy of the right, and arguing that, in fact, you need justices who will interpret the law in sort of in terms of the common good, you know, as defined, presumably, although Vermeule didn't say this explicitly, through Christian and Catholic perspectives on what the common good entails. And Vermeule, I think, ultimately believes in a political revolution in the U.S. in which Congress becomes entirely vestigial and the country is ruled by sort of the courts, the bureaucracy and the presidency, which actually sort of describes the, the U.S. already, but not to the extent that he's describing. Anyway, that's that's long winded. But to answer to answer your particular question, I think there's, you know, I, I think there are perfectly sound reasons for non-Catholics to look at sort of the implications of some of these philosophical turns and be troubled by them and wonder, you know, in a world where Catholic integralists actually attained power, what would happen to non-Catholics given the history of persecution and religious conflict? I objected to the term fascism because I don't think it's the right term. I don't think, you know, I, I don't, I think the, the liberal fixation on fascism as an all-encompassing description for non-liberal regimes is a big mistake. And it's sort of an analytic error. And I think that if you, you know, you would not describe like pre-revolutionary France as fascist. I, I mean, like 1770s France, you would not describe most of the regimes that have existed throughout human history as fascist. And what some of these people 
you know, you can call them, I think, illiberal or post-liberal works. I think, you know, if they're Catholic and call themselves integralists, that works. If you want to accuse them of authoritarianism, that, you know, you can you can do that. But it's just a different, you know, they're they're trying to basically revive political philosophies in which democracy and pluralism are not the highest goods. And fascism is only one type of that kind of argument. Sure. But here'd be my my pushback. And, and I take that mostly. You have a nice argument in your book making the point that a lot of people are currently cosplaying online into older and in some cases darker ideologies, right? There's a lot of like Red Rose Twitter, like putting up guillotine gifts. Yep. And you just gave the version of Rod from the Benedict option or the version of of Vermeil from um, the Atlantic. If you follow them on Twitter or social media, or in some degree Rod on his blog, certainly with Vermeil, like there's more cosplaying on Twitter with a very extremist persona, right? Like who's going to be first to the camps? I would say Rod's blog persona is more confrontational than his book persona. Right, we're all different things in different contexts, yes. and I'm not saying the same isn't true for me. But in the same way that what worries me online with a lot of people is things that start out as jokes that get good engagement slowly become an aesthetic that slowly becomes something you're like a little bit more acculturated cult- uh, to. Like that's what I see happening in this part of the argument, right? I, I like definitely like when people are publishing in the law journals, they sound more sober. But there's just a weird thing happening in. Um, certainly like I would call it like Catholic right Twitter that feels more grim to me and darker. And it's actually sometimes disappointing because not that like history shouldn't disabuse me of this, just in the way that like a lot of people wish egalitarian, like socialist motivated by an egalitarian ideology didn't so often historically become authoritarian communists. Like, you know, there's a lot of beauty in the traditions people are drawing from here. And you would hope that there would be more mercy, I would say, and grace in their argumentation, but there very much isn't. This I'm always kind of struck by how little um, ideologues are actually anchored. But some of that is Twitter, right? I've had a number of extremely waspish Twitter exchanges with Vermeule about issues that would seem to non-Catholics like incredibly small points. And I'm not sure if he and I bring out the worst in each other or if I just, you know, I'm need to go to confession more often or something. But I, I'm I'm probably the wrong person to analyze his particular Twitter style. I think in general, Twitter tends to be the enemy of, you know, sort of richer and deeper and more profound reflections. I think that's totally fair. I guess my skepticism about the people who sort of, you know, sort of leap from sort of Twitter jokes to like the darkest interpretations is that I do think that there, I think that Twitter lends itself to cosplay too, in, in the sense yes. that like it, 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 people are nasty and extreme, but it's also generally not real or it's people from outside not getting the jokes to some extent, right? Like, like we had this whole controversy at the Times where Sarah Jiang, this woman who was temporarily hired by the editorial board, you know, had written a bunch of tweets basically being racist towards white people, except that if you were like in the sort of world of her tweets, those weren't read as racist. They were read as like ironic commentary on racism. But nobody could agree back and forth afterward about, you know, the extent to which that 
you know, where does irony end and actual racism <laughs> begin, right? Like, those are questions that Twitter raises every day. But I don't see that cashing out in that much real world extremism. And this is, you know, this is sort of one of the core arguments of the book. And of course, it could be proven wrong over the next 10 years. But it seems to me that the people who become our mass murderers, the people who go on shooting rampages, are marinating in much narrower and darker worlds than the world of like Rose Twitter. The internet is now full of tankies and, you know, people who are who offer apologetics for Stalin and all this crazy stuff on the left. But that hasn't translated into like real left wing street violence, Antifa notwithstanding. To me, that's still the, the fundamental quality of online discourse is the performative unreality, not the return of the 1930s. Yeah, I think this is one of the best points your book makes. And it's interesting because on my book tour, I just got tons of are we headed for a civil war, which in my view, no. And in your book, I think has a good drive on this, which is that a lot of the energy that looks so discordant, people don't take it quite seriously enough for it to, to, to rise to the levels people fear it might eventually, which I think is like 60% probability to be true, right? Like, I, I don't know. And I'm a little bit more cautious in this way, and I'd, I'd like to hear what you think about it, which is, I think people underestimate the degree to which our mediums change us, right? I've, I have like a lot of Marshall McLuhan in me on this one. And I think Donald, like if you read old Neil Postman, he functionally predicts something like Donald Trump. I mean, at times he actually literally talks about Trump, if I'm remembering this correctly. But he really predicts like a televisual culture is going to create people who treat politics like entertainment. And he predicts people like Donald Trump emerging. And so like now our politics, like some decades on, reflects that. You didn't get it immediately. I mean, maybe you did a little bit with Ronald Reagan, actually. But it has begun to clarify as time has gone on. And it's become like more intense with Twitter. Like Twitter, like Trump is an amalgam of cable news and Twitter in a certain yep. way. Now that comes with, in some ways, its benefits. Somewhere you and I agree and that a lot of people don't is that I think a lot of the scariest possibilities Trump have not manifested because he functionally reflects Twitter's attention span in addition to its politics. He is himself not attentive to do the worst things he might be able to do, but doesn't mean other people won't be and other people use it in, in a different way. So I don't know. I think these things diffuse through populations slowly, and I think that they slowly acculturate us to different worlds. I mean, it's a very standard truism of people who study online extremism that it starts as a joke. And I mean, that is like, yes, most people don't go on shooting rampages, but even among some of the ones who do, like if you go back, like it starts in 4chan with fun memes. And then at some point you're doing what they call the real life effort post. And like even calling it the real life effort post, which some of them have done before going out with a machine gun is itself covering the most horrific act you can possibly imagine in a layer of irony. So it's like joking is a way that it both is made unreal and it also like collapses a boundary between you and something that would have seemed too extreme to be real before. And when I'm thinking about when I am feeling dystopic, that is a place that comes up for me. Not that not that we're there yet, but that, you know, if I was to tell a story to try to write the speculative fiction of how American politics like really got bad, I mean, I think a pretty irony-drenched movement would end up being at the heart of my at the heart of my fears. No, I, I think that's a one, I think that's a totally reasonable fear. But I think it's a somewhat I just think it's a somewhat different fear from the conventional fears that people have rooted in historical experience of 
like violence in the streets and return of the late 60s, if not the 1930s, right? That that it seems to me that you can have a world where politics consists of sort of toxic cultural performance, but that can go on for a long time without translating into violence and and dreadful upheaval. And this may be where, I mean, what I say in the book is that this this hypothesis has not been tested by, let's say, an actual Great Depression or you know, a pandemic, right? Or these kind of, you know, the the world of sort of irony posting and Twitter is only about 10 or 12 or 15 years old. Um, it really wasn't in place to a deep extent when the Great Recession happened in 2008. So we don't know what, you know, what, what does Red Rose Twitter do over 20 years? What does, you know, what does far-right Catholic Twitter do or something over 20 years where the economy is terrible and society seems to be under strain in all kinds of ways? And maybe in that world, it translates into reality in some really dark way. But Trump himself just exists in this permanent virtual reality, in a, in a way that's that it just seems really striking, right? That like this as this week, the latest Trumpian outrage is him writing tweets about how you know claiming that Joe Scarborough might have committed murder, which is insane, right? It's insane that the president of the United States is writing tweets accusing a popular cable show host uh, falsely, I should add, based on anything anyone can see of of murder. But it's also totally unreal. Donald Trump is the, you know, he runs the he runs law enforcement in the US notionally, right? Like he's and nobody looking at those tweets thinks, man, I guess Trump is, you know, is well, I shouldn't say that. Some people maybe do look at those tweets and think Trump is gonna have and, the and attorney I, general. I, I do wanna I was with you until right there, because I do want to note that like there is now an effort among elected Republicans and certainly among the DOJ to take not an investigation of Joe Scarborough seriously, but hashtag Obamagate. There's many things Donald Trump hasn't done, but to some degree politicize law enforcement and the DOJ. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that he's done that. Yes, except that this is a case where like Trump has politicized law enforcement in a way that is designed purely for his own self-protection. All of the law enforcement activities that make liberals so angry that Barr and, and others have done have been in response to a massive investigation of Donald Trump that put some of his cronies in jail, right? Like, so Trump Trump is willing to use the powers of government to some extent, not even to protect his allies, really, but just to sort of protect himself. And that that is real. I, I agree. And that and that can have a degrading effect on um, on the rule of law in the U.S., but it just it just seems to me different from the ambitions of someone who actually wanted to, like, you know, use his powers to remake society. I mean, I think there's a difference. And this this is, you know, maybe maybe I'm overestimating this difference. I think there's a difference between sort of corruption and and authoritarianism. Right. That like Trump is corrupt, but his authoritarianism is 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 a virtual thing. It's a it's sort of a sham. Yeah, Trump is such a weird, interesting. I mean, he's a perfect figure for decadence. Yes, well, and because he's also against decadence, right? Like this is the 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 last the speech that Trump gave 
at the State of the Union before the coronavirus brought everything crashing down was basically a declaration of victory against decadence, right? He got up and gave a speech that was like, America used to be great, and then we became stagnant and pathetic. But now under my presidency, you know, the economy is growing again, and we're going into space, and we're doing all these things. Like, he's, you know, he's not just a sort of, I mean, he is a sort of like ridiculous figure of personal excess and uh, and discipline undiscipline and immorality and all of these things but he's also someone whose whose narrative the narrative that he wants to sell you on is one that acknowledges decadence and claims that he's the man to fix it it's fascinating support for this podcast comes from constant contact if you're a business owner you already know that it's really really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Your book and my book came out within, I think, something like a month and a half, two months of each other. And we are, I don't want to say explaining the same thing, but we are explaining at the very least related phenomena. So from from your perspective, what am I most wrong about? I think for the purposes of this conversation that the difference between our diagnoses is that I'm trying to zoom out a little bit more than you are. And you're focused on sort of a particular pathology and trend that's not just confined to America, but, you know, your book is very much focused on the American political system and sort of how its historical eccentricities have contributed to a sort of disastrous polarization. And I'm trying to lift up a little more, fold in sort of Europe and East Asia into the narrative a little more and go a little bit beyond sort of the political lanes that you and I write about. And so, you know, if I were criticizing your book, I would say by zooming in, it loses some of the larger perspective. But at the same time, you could turn that around and say that, you know, my books doesn't zoom in enough on any one thing and just sort of skips, skips from <laughs> skips from movies to politics, right to the next thing and says decadence, decadence, decadence. Um, and um, so your book has many more of the virtues of sort of specificity and close, close analysis. Have you read Martin Gurry's Revolt of the Public? Yes. 
what one place I thought was interesting, actually, as a as a hit on both of our arguments, is that I am making an argument about why it is very difficult to do anything functionally, which is a kind of subcategory of your decadence. And you're making an argument, you know, that's come out a couple of times. I think in this conversation, even a bit more clearly, that things aren't being built. We're not building new institutions. We're not on some level building new cultural products. Is a is an idea that you you focus on. And Gurry's view is that. All over the world right now, there is this kind of internet revolt, internet-driven revolt. And I find his argument a little complicated to sometimes state correctly, but he's I, I would say he's basically arguing that the internet exposes the flaws of every institution and public figure and cultural product endlessly, but makes it very hard to build anything sustainable in their place. And so, like we've created a technological construct that is very good at tearing down, but very um, bad at building up. And so, like more is being destroyed than created. How much do you think that is a plausible explanation? I think it's pretty plausible, and you could read that either as you know a sort of confirmation of our arguments or as a challenge to it, right? Depending on how much tearing down happens. Right. If the tearing down is sort of limited, then Guri is saying something that's compatible with our books, which is basically that because things keep getting torn down, nothing can get done. And so, you know, from the perspective of polarization, no political figure can transcend polarization long enough to do anything because it's too easy for the other side to tear them down. From the perspectives of decadence writ large, you know, no no figure or movement or school of thought or anything can can get as far as you need to get to get a renaissance. But on the other hand, if this tearing down goes far enough, then you're in a zone where the decadence argument no longer applies and you're into like collapse, right? So I think I think that's sort of that was the question that I was that I'm left with reading his argument, right? Like is he is he making another stagnationist argument that we're sort of stuck? Or is he saying actually, you know, eventually this is going to lead to real collapses, at which point the world will just be a different place. And I think part of it, too, is like, you know, the Internet is a, still a new technology, right? So it's it's clearly had some of the effects he's described. The question is, does it keep do those effects compound? Does it become even more and more and more impossible <laughs> to govern? Or is there just sort of a sort of steady state of, you know, governments are torn down, new one comes in, manages for a year or two, torn down, new one comes in, etc. I don't know. And I mean, the you know, he's writing like all of us before the pandemic, and the pandemic is sort of a stress test of all theories. And so we'll know more about all of our theories of what's going on, I guess, in a couple of years, maybe. In that institution's question, so you're at, in journalism and American culture, a pretty storied institution. You're on the New York Times op-ed page. How do you think its role has changed kind of culturally, politically in the time you've been there? Like, what's the difference between the Time's Op-Ed section when you came and today? Well, those are different questions. So I'll take the first one. I mean, I think the Times is in certain ways a more important institution in American life today than it was when I started. And that's obviously just because I've been there. <laughs> so, you know, I've made I've made the difference. Um, that's a joke. Uh, no, I, I. but I, I think when I joined the Times, there was a sense that like, the entire newspaper industry was in crisis in the Times most of all. And I think just before I started the Times, I was at the Atlantic and we ran a piece called by Michael Hershorn arguing that the Times could like literally go out of business in, in the next few years. And I was also I came in 
like you, we were sort of part of this generation of people who were described as bloggers. And there was this sense that the internet was creating this kind of democratized landscape where individual voices were ever more important and old fusty institutions were getting beaten by, by bloggers all the time. I'd say in the 10, 12, 11 years since I've been there, one, the age of blogging sort of went away. And most sort of not that there aren't blogs, but the age of like tons and tons of amateurs writing all the time and sort of setting the agenda for newspapers stopped. And Twitter and other forms of social media sort of became the place where people had arguments and conversation. And the institutions that survived sort of absorbed a lot of the energy of the blogosphere into their pages. And the Times was one of those institutions that didn't just survive, but thrived, right? And continues to thrive to the present day. And so we're in a land, we're in a media landscape in American life where, you know, every newspaper that is not the Times and a couple others has sort of gotten incredibly that much weaker. And certain alternative forms of journalism that the internet was supposed to further have just sort of migrated onto Twitter. And so the Times sort of, you know, it it stands as, I think, a, a more substantial edifice today than it did when I started. And th this was sort of a version of Ben Smith, our new media columnist, wrote in his first column about whether the Times had become too big or something. Um, but I think that I think that reality is is right. And now it coexists with the reality of ongoing polarization where the Times is less significant to one of our two political coalitions than at any point in the past, which obviously limits its influence in certain important ways. So that 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 is true too. But that was that was already true when I started. There's never been a moment being at the times where I felt like the institutional Republican Party really cared what David Brooks and I and you know now Brett Stevens and others have to say. Whereas the solidification of the times is central role in American journalism. That has changed since I've been there, I think. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting, I don't want to call it an irony, but like a like a insight that David Brooks, I would say, was a much more influential columnist inside the Obama administration than the George W. Bush administration. Yes, although he was influential in the George W. Bush administration. He, and he that's, was, but and even, the transition but from, tr from Bush to Trump, like that, I mean that is a that is a real change, right? That under Bush there was a world of sort of, you know, conservative columnists that mattered to that administration. And that that world, too, is gone. But that's sort of a separate discussion, I guess. As we sort of bring this in for, for a close, who are the writers on the right you think people on the left should read? And who on the left, um, outside your own institution, do you read? On the right, I mean, I, I think the most interesting stuff happening is these attempts to figure out what, you know, what does conservatism look like after Trump? What does it look like after the Reagan era? What does it look like after the various crises America has gone through? And that's happening sort of in a way that's distributed across a bunch of different places. There isn't sort of one journal of the new conservatism. A bunch of the sort of smaller journals have have taken this up. But I mean, I, I think if you're if you're on if you're on the left and interested in intellectual engagement, you should read American Affairs, First Things, and Modern Age, let's say, three sort of low-circulation, right-of-center journals of ideas, and you will get 
I think, a sense of the contours of if conservatism is if intellectual conservatism is transformed after the Trump era, that is sort of where you'll see it happen. And then I think you should also read. I think that by virtue of combining Jonah Goldberg and David French together, the dispatch, the sort of small startup forged from the wreckage of various other places as the voice of sort of an intellectual conservatism that says the old view of in, of what conservatism was and was for was right. And some mistakes were made and we ended up in a bad place, but it's still right. I think reading French and Goldberg is a good place to get that perspective. The problem with doing all of this, though, is that you aren't necessarily learning that much about like what is animating the Trump White House and the GOP in the day to day. But th that's sort of a limiting principle on just about all intellectual reading. Yeah, I mean, even things that I think are closer there, like the Claremont Review, it sometimes feels like it's an after the fact effort to build a structure around something that Donald Trump is doing as opposed to the thing that Donald Trump is drawing from. Yes, I mean, I think the best the the writers who are sort of pro-Trump and really smart, whether it's a Daniel McCarthy or a Christopher Caldwell or a Helen Andrews, uh, my critique of them and is that I feel like they are just they're always describing Trump from 30,000 feet, whereas what defines Trump is not the sort of, you know, broad nationalist, populist, anti-China philosophy. It's the chaos and cruelty and absurdity of the day to day, which is, you know, I understand why people don't want to defend that. But that's that's sort of the the reality there. And how about on the left? I don't know. I mean, I was, you know, I, I have really enjoyed reading all of the intra-socialist and intra-left debates. Um, I've, in, you know, enjoyed reading Jacobin and for, for a long time. I have sometimes enjoyed Harper's as a sort of as a sort of self-conscious counterweight to some trends on the left. I, I have a tough time. I think the wreck of the Bernie Sanders campaign and the ascent of Joe Biden has made me uncertain about what the important debates are on the left right now. And so I'm a little uncertain about who I should be reading at the moment. Yeah, there, there's actually, I think that's a very sharp point um, that is for, to explore in another podcast. Um, and so let me then end where we always end, which is what are three books you'd recommend? So I figured I should re recommend some some decadence since we've been, you know, besides my own some. So I think I would be remiss if I didn't recommend, since I've stolen some of the ideas in the book from it, including maybe the definition of decadence, that people should actually read Jacques Barzun's book, From Dawn to Decadence, that came out 20 years ago now. Ooh, I tried that once. I did not get far. It's a book that you can skim through, like the sections that are sort of defining decadence you can read, and then the cultural history you can skim you can skim back and forth. But Barzun is, you know, he is genuinely a polymath, a brilliant figure, and to just sort of wander through his his mind's interpretation of the last 500 years is, I think, totally worth doing. Um, so that's one book. Uh, then I'll suggest a pairing. I'll cheat a little bit and say, you know, you mentioned that I'm in part trying to argue that Francis Fukuyama was pretty much right when he wrote The End of History. And so I think people should read The End of History again and sort of with an eye towards taking it seriously as something other than just this overconfident prediction of liberalism's permanent triumph. And I think you should read it together with 
the super re- weird and often unreadable book by Jean Baudrillard, The Illusion of the End, <laughs> that came out a couple of years later that's sort of in dialogue with Fukuyama. I think that combination is um, is worth reading. And then finally, I think, you know, we've just lived through a kind of handmaid's tale moment in American culture. And one of the things I do in the book is try and put The Handmaid's Tale into conversation with the children of men, not the movie um, that came out with Clive Owen, but the original P.D. James novel about a human future without children, where basically all men go infertile and the human race can't reproduce. And so I'm going to recommend that because I think that everyone who ever bought a copy of The Handmaid's Tale should also buy a copy of The Children of Men and read them together as sort of shared commentary on low fertility, late liberalism and its discontents. So P.D. James, The Children of Men. And your book is The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success. Sometimes I will say that I think people don't really need to buy the book after listening to the podcast, we mainly get it. But as you've kind of mentioned, the book hops around into a bunch of interesting places we didn't get to go. A lot of cultural arguments about Star Wars and Children of Men, and it's a very fun read. So you have not gotten all of the book listening to this podcast. So if you want more, you should actually grab it. Ross Douthit, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much, Ezra. It's very generous of you. Thank you to Ross for being here. Thank you all of you for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.